Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. Last time we were together, we had a very dramatic lesson on one of the most striking portions of God's Word. It is poetically beautiful. It is unparalleled in its imagery. But perhaps its most remarkable quality is its accuracy as prophecy. Of course, you know I'm referring to Psalm 22. This is one of the best-known psalms in all of Christianity, but most of us didn't even know it existed because whenever we heard it read in church, we thought it was the Gospel of Matthew or Mark. It's so closely tied to the life of Christ, it simply sounds like it was written in his lifetime, but in fact, it was written a thousand years before. Now, not only is it well known to Christians, though most could only quote a verse or two from memory, not only is this a well-known psalm of the church, it's equally well-known in Jewish worship. But if one were to attempt to characterize the relationship between the Jews and Psalm 22, can I be so bold as to say in modern parlance? It's complicated. You see, there was a time when the ancient Jews viewed this psalm as messianic. The ancient Jews considered Psalm 22 a prophetic picture of the plight of the coming Messiah. However, this opinion has since changed, and we can actually trace the origin of this change to around the time of the early church, as you may imagine. You see, the early church fathers went about teaching of the extraordinary similarities between what was depicted in Psalm 22 and what actually happened to Jesus. This, of course, had the effect of putting the Jewish leadership of the first and second century in a bit of a bind. You see, to continue in their own belief that Psalm 22 was messianic would place them in the awkward position of admitting that Jesus was the Messiah. For obvious reasons, they could not do that, not least of which was the fact that it was their jealousy, schemes, and lies that sent him to the cross and experienced so vividly and undeniably described in this very psalm. You're not going to be a Jewish leader for long if you have to admit you caused all the prophesied suffering of the Messiah. You see, the problem 
the Jewish leadership had with Psalm 22 was its prophetic accuracy. What happened in Psalm 22 was very similar to how the Gospels reported the crucifixion. It was very difficult to deny that. The similarity between what Jesus endured on the cross and what was described in the psalm is nothing short of remarkable. And there was no easy way to overlook that. Well, the only way to resolve this conflict was for the Jewish scholars to downplay the idea that the psalm was prophetic of the Messiah. And the way they accomplished that goal was to actually reject the ancient suggestion that the Messiah would be so-called a suffering Messiah. He had been expected to be a suffering Messiah from ancient times. That's how the Jewish scholars taught it. Now they were forced into rejecting that idea. That's how they were able to disconnect from the astonishing similarities between the sufferer of the Gospels and the sufferer of Psalm 22. Now, to this day, Hebrew scholarship does not teach that Psalm 22 is Messianic, but rather Davidic. Now, there are some Jewish scholars who feel that Perhaps Psalm 22 is maybe symbolic or metaphoric of the loathsome plight of the Jewish people down through the centuries, but mostly it's taught as if it were Davidic. No longer do they teach that Psalm 22 is prophetic, but rather they now insist that it is historic. This isn't a foreshadowing of a future king, but rather the record of a past king. Now, it's long been my policy to avoid arguing about the things of God. I just let his word do all the talking. So let's go ahead and read the part of the psalm that we've already gone over. Now, we will be covering the rest of Psalm 22 today. This is part two of a two-part series on Psalm 22. What we're about to do is read the portion of the psalm that we've already covered. I may sprinkle in a comment or two, but I don't intend to go over too much of any ground we've already covered. We still have so much more to talk about. Here we go. Verse 1. To the chief musician upon Ayeleth Shaher, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. 
Remember, we went over the amazing similarities between these verses and what was actually described. Mostly, we went over what was described in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's keep going. Verse 9. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Verse 16, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That never happened to David. When you look at this psalm and consider it a record of David's life, when did that happen? How would the Jewish scholars come to the conclusion that David was describing something he went through? Verse 17, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Every Easter, I don't like that word, but we'll go ahead and use it because you know what it means. Every Easter, we actually go over so much of this in our church services. Remember the soldiers were gambling over the tunic that Jesus had? That was in the Gospels. But here we have what sounds like the same record. Verse 18 of Psalm 22. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. We're going to go over that unusual verse in a few minutes. But let me say it again. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Now, besides the fact that this is an extraordinarily long psalm filled with incredible theology that needs to be carefully and thoroughly worked out, there's another reason why I decided to teach this psalm in two parts. Psalm 22 is itself structured in two parts. Psalm 22 has two distinct sections, two distinct moods, and the place where one part ends and the other part begins is between verse 21 and verse 22. Let me read those. I stopped at verse 20. Let me read verse 21 and 22. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation while I praise thee. Something obvious happens here. Poetically, it feels like there's a shift 
between verse 21 and verse 22. Now you must remember, this is really a rare piece of literature. Indeed, the whole book of Psalms is a precious treasure in prose, but Psalm 22 shines brightly in its unique beauty. This psalm is prophecy set to poetry. Listen, it's not only remarkable, as we've been saying all along from the standpoint of its accuracy, but it even tells us our future in such a beautiful way. For 21 verses, we've been subjected to the horrors of a crucifixion. The psalmist went about doing what the gospel writers didn't or perhaps couldn't, even maybe out of great sorrow and shock. For 21 verses, we have been given a picture of what's going on in the mind of the crucified Jesus as he's being crucified. The gospel writers couldn't do that. The gospel writers were not given that access For some reason, David was. When David wrote this psalm, he wasn't writing it about himself. Remember, we said that last week. I'm sorry to say to the Jewish scholarship, David is not writing a record of what he went through. David was given access to the mindset of the Messiah, and he described that for 21 verses in Psalm 22. It's remarkable. Verse 21 again, save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Up to this point, up to the point of verse 21, the imagery of this psalm has been one of, well, torture. The subject here, the protagonist, has been describing a brutal extended period of mental and physical torment at the hands of his enemies. That's the first part of Psalm 22. Now forget for a second that these are the thoughts of Jesus on the cross. Put that out of your mind for a moment and think about this without specific reference to a known person. For 21 verses, we have been the internal witness to a victim of crime. We are in the mind, for some reason, of a person who's being, let's call it what it is, murdered. Now, I'm sorry to be so graphic, but I don't believe in watering this down. It infuriates me that at Easter time, so-called Easter time, we've covered over the horrors of this event with cute little bunnies and duckies and yummy chocolate and pretty dresses and bow ties and four-year-olds. The reality is it's a brutal murder. For 21 verses, we've had to endure witnessing the agony of a poor soul being brutalized. By verse 21, we we feel the intensity reach its peak and we wonder how much more this person can endure. We've been hearing this person suffering for 21 verses. How much more can they take? Well, it's very difficult to express, but no human being, not even someone as 
strong as Jesus can bear this treatment indefinitely. Switching back to the Gospels for a moment, this very same moment as verse 21 of Psalm 22, we're going to read what actually happened as it happened, as recorded in John 19.30. The recording of John 19.30 was the moment after Psalm 22, verse 21. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Not even John, Jesus' dear friend, could tell us what Jesus was thinking right before this moment. But it must have been important. It must have been important that we do know what was going on in the mind of Jesus. Now, why do you say that, John? Because God gave it to us in Psalm 22. Why did he do that? Well, I can't say for sure, but I think it's because God wants you to know what your sin caused. He's not going to let you and me off the hook. He's going to honor his son. And so he gave us Psalm 22. It's remarkable when you think about it. I know I keep using that word. I don't know what other word to use. It's remarkable. That this was so important, that what Jesus was going through was so important to God's plan that he had it recorded a thousand years before so that there's only one way you know you got record of what Jesus went through, and that's because God gave that to you. God had the suffering of Jesus recorded a thousand years before it happened so that there was no way you would get wrong who gave you access to it, God himself. Those first 21 verses are an unmistakable picture of the Son of God suffering as he hung on that cross. But then comes verse 22. I'm going to read verses 21 and 22 together again so we can see the dramatic shift. First, verse 21. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. That's verse 21. Then the poetic silence, momentary silence, and then the second part of Psalm 22 begins, interestingly, with verse 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation while I praise thee. Let's, let's read a few more. Let's go with 22 again, and then we'll read a few more. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Will I praise thee? Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. Remember Psalm 21, Psalm 22 begins with 
Jesus saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you not heard me? Verse 22, the beginning or the second half of Psalm 22 at verse 24 says he's heard. The question is asked in verse 1 as the man was dying. And it's answered in the second part. How come? What shifted? What happened? For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his voice from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. Poetic prophecy. In part two of Psalm 22, the torment's over. We're not reading about pain and suffering and anguish and isolation anymore. The man on the cross is no longer suffering. This man's enemies thought their methods of torture would silence him. Well, there may have been silence, but it lasted for only a moment. Again, just like that day a thousand years later. The chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees tried to do what all evil men tried to do. They tried to use death to solve their problem. And they thought for three days they'd done it. They got a momentary silence, just like the silence between verse 21 and verse 22 of Psalm 22. There was a brief silence between Christ's death on the cross and the day of resurrection. Brief silence. That same brief silence is depicted in Psalm 22, verse 21 and 22. The transition from Psalm 22, verse 21 to Psalm 22, verse 2 is the transition from crucifixion to life. That's why you teach this in two parts. Could you have taught it in one? Of course. But I want you to see that there is a purposeful shift. That this is a story of the death and the life. This can't be Davidic. This cannot be Davidic. The transition from Psalm 22, verse 21, to Psalm 22, verse 22, is resurrection. Jesus is risen, and we can see that happen when we get to verse 22 of Psalm 22. It's as obvious as anything else in Scripture. So let's do this again. Let's read a few verses before and then a few verses after so we can see this transition unfold in real time. We'll go all the way back to, I guess, verse 16. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, obviously a, re a reference to crucifixion. Verse 17, I may tell all my bones. He was... When you're on that cross, you're breathing deeply. You're trying deeply to gather in a breath to the point that you can start to see your ribcage. 
I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling. Now here is this unusual verse. Let me read it all the way through. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Now this, as I said, is rather odd, and it maybe throws us off a bit as written in the King James the word that's being translated my darling is yahid we've talked about that word yahid before the word yahid in the hebrew is indicative of a solitary thing it is a unitary thing so it's better to say deliver my soul from the sword my solitary life or my desolate life or my precious life from the power of the dog Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. We'll cover that one in a second. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. This is a transition from death and the excruciating nature of it to the exaltation of resurrection. And it is very obvious. So let's go over real quickly verse 21. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. This is a very difficult verse to unpack. Now the original word leads many of the translators to use the word wild oxen. So some of the more contemporary English versions of this verse will use the term wild oxen. And why is it called unicorn? Well, some scholars believe because this wild oxen that is now an extinct animal, the one that they think is being referred to here, one that roamed the earth, if you will, in Davidic times, actually had a single horn. Now, why is that important? I'm not saying this is why the word unicorn is here. Some suggest that the word unicorn is here because it is referring to the cross. You have heard me from the horns of the cross. Now, why would they say that? Well, the original Greek word for cross is staros. And staros is not the type of cross that you and I imagine or have been told exists. Again, this is not my theory. I'm giving you other people's theories. Do you think that this, it's this way, John? I don't know. I don't think it's important enough to really conjecture on. However, some say that staros means a stake and that Jesus was actually crucified on a singular stake without the cross beam. Now, I believe that it would, if he was crucified in that way, it would have the same effect. We won't get, get into what a crucifixion does. We talked about that last week. It is indeed possible that there was a singular stake 
as the cross without the cross beam. And if that were the case, then that makes this verse even more remarkable. For thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn, the singular stake you have heard me from the cross. Very interesting. Again, I don't believe it's really worth theorizing either way because we know that Psalm 22 is talking about Jesus on the cross. I'm not convinced that the cross was a singular piece. I'm not convinced that the word unicorn was put there purposely to describe a singular horn because it says the horns in the plural of the unicorns. So that doesn't really necessarily line up well. And as far as I can tell, the word unicorn was just something that was translated from the Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, and even Jerome's Bible. So it's difficult to say, as I said, it's really actually not worth trying to theorize what's really meant here by this word unicorns. It is interesting, yes, but not worth spending that much time on. We went over it because I think it's worth discussing. I think that it's an interesting or even weird enough word. Unicorn is weird enough that if I passed by it, it would sound like I was hiding something. I didn't want to appear as if I was hiding something. I wasn't trying to just ignore that that unusual word unicorn is in there. That's why I gave you what some scholars believe is to be the case. I don't believe it. I believe that unicorn is a an improper word here. I don't think it, I think wild oxen or wild ox is a better word. That's, that's what the word should have been when it was translated by the King James translators. And by the way, some of the older versions, the English versions, there you have it. So let's get back on point. We can see that the transition from verse 21 to verse 22 is the transition from torture to triumph, from groaning to glory, from vexation to victory, from writhing to rising. This is a picture of the resurrected Savior. I want to repeat my Point from last week, some have called Psalm 22 the Psalm of the Cross or the Psalm of the Crucifixion, and I say that's only partially accurate. Yes, Psalm 22 up to verse 21 is a clear indication of what it's like to hang on a cross, but starting at verse 22, we can no longer make that fit. Tell me, does this sound like someone who's dying on a cross? I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Does that sound like a man dying on a cross? And let me repeat, just like verse 1 of the psalm was a loud enough to hear announcement to begin part 1, verse 22 is sounding like a new proclamation. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. It looks like the situation has changed. This person's situation has changed. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Will I praise thee? This is pure literary genius. 
and made all the more spectacular when you realize it's actually prophetic. Don't you just love the Word of God? Clearly, this is not just a psalm of the cross. The cross is the symbol of wrath. Surely the cross is represented in part one, yes. Yes, verses 1 through 21 do sound like and do represent a cross, but the second part of Psalm 22 is what that cross led to. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. The situation has changed. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. What I always try to do in this ministry, and I've been trying to do since we started this, is get you to see you can rely on God's word. That this isn't just some fairy tale for ignorant cavemen. There is so much richness to this word, and I trust you. I think you can get it. The church may not think you're smart enough, but I do. You know why I believe that? And I don't know any of you. I know very few of you. But I can say that because I know you have the Holy Spirit helping you. How do you know that, John? Because Jesus sent him to unpack the truth. He's the spirit of all truth. That's what Jesus called him. So why hide this from you? Why assume you're not going to get it? I've been trying to teach you that God's word is the greatest treasure we have ever been given. And Psalm 22 is perhaps one of the greatest examples of that truth. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath, hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. This is great poetry. This is great prophecy. The cross is now behind this person. Why do I say this? Because now he's praising. He's proclaiming. He's promoting. If you ask me, he's doing that from off the cross. He's clearly no longer restrained. He's no longer in the midst of his enemies. Do you see any mention of his enemies? All the mention is, is of the congregation and of the brethren. Sounds like the risen Jesus to me. Sounds like this, doesn't it? Luke 24, 13, and behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus. You've heard this before which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And it came to pass that while they, skipping, skipping down a couple verses, and it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. This is Luke 24, 13 through 27, with some verses in the middle omitted just for the purposes of moving along. I didn't know if I announced that. Verse 16, but their eyes were holden, 
that they should not know him, skipping down, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them. You know what expounding is? Proclaiming. It's praising. It's telling them about himself. And he expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This was when Jesus had already left the tomb. This scene in Luke 24 was when Jesus was off that cross. When Jesus left that tomb after the cross had done its job, the risen Jesus went about declaring, proclaiming, and demonstrating what God had done through him, just like Psalm 22 said he would. Jesus went to his brethren to tell them what happened, to tell them the story that didn't end at verse 21. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye the seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. When all of the earth, when all of mankind cried in the desperation of their sinful state, God heard them and sent his son so that we may be redeemed. That's what this is saying. And then something very interesting is mentioned. Let me read verse 24 and then the interesting verse 25. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. Now there's something almost too subtle to notice without having it pointed out to you. In verse 22, there's mention of brethren and the congregation. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. So in Psalm 22, there is a congregation and brethren. Then verse 25 says, my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. So there is a congregation and there is a great congregation two distinct groups, congregation, great congregation. According to a study published by the Berman Jewish Data Bank, the current world Jewish population stands at about 14 and a half million. Let me maybe state it in another way. The core congregation or assembly of the Jewish people in the world is 14.4 million people. Then again, according to, this is a different set of data, according to Pew Research Center from just a few years ago, the world Christian population in 2015 is roughly 2.3 billion. My praise shall be of thee in the great 
congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. Now, the word in the Hebrew that gets translated great is rab, R-A-B, in our letters. Now, to you and I, great means something like mighty or excellent, but rab doesn't mean that. Rab in the Hebrew means numerous or abundant. You and I would say large or many. My praise shall be of thee in the large congregation, the numerous congregation. All of this is connected, but let me tell you that Jesus once laid down the pattern for the telling of the gospel. It is reflected in Psalm 22, but let me read it out of Acts 1.8. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both. That's important. When someone uses the word both in English, it means there are two groups, right? Same thing in the Greek. The one, the word that gets translated into the word both is referring to two distinct groups. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Though it may not sound like it, and I'll have to point it out to you, there are actually two groups being referred to in Acts 1.8. That's why the word both is there. There are two audiences, two student populations, if you will, two assemblies Jesus is calling his people to witness to. Number one, the population of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Number two, the uttermost part of the earth. Those are the two groups. Now, the population of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria is the traditional land of the Jews and the uttermost part of the earth, which, as I'm sure you can imagine, is the Gentile world, is now the seat of the church. There are two groups, the Jewish people and the church. You shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Now back to Psalm 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation while I praise thee. Nowadays, around 14.4 million. And then in verse 25, my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation, the numerous, the abundant congregation, around 2.3 billion. Jesus is declaring the gospel to the brethren and the congregation, the Jews, and to the great congregation, which he does not say brethren. The Gentiles, the great church, 2.3 billion people. He says, I will Declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The word of God is infallible. According to verse 22, the man that was once on the cross declared God's name first among his brethren. Jesus was a Jew. 
He declared God's name first in the midst of the congregation, the assembly of the Jews, his brethren by heritage. By the way, let me remind you that the first assembling of the church was on the day of Pentecost. And who was in it? Who was in that first assembly? The book of Acts describes them as devout Jewish men. The very first resurrection sermon was to the collection of devout Jews. I said to you before, I said this to you last week or last time. If you doubt scripture, if you are a doubter, you're going to have a real hard time maintaining that position if you're studying Psalm 22. You're going to have a very difficult time. You're going to have to be like the people we referred to earlier. You're just going to have to change the story somehow. You're going to have to figure out a way to change the story because what's staring you in the face in Psalm 22 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't, know, I don't know how you can see it any other way. The first sermon after the man was off the cross was to the Jews gathered in, in Jerusalem. And then Jesus sent the apostles unto the uttermost part of the earth, to the great, the numerous, the abundant congregation, the church. First to the congregation, then the great congregation. My friends, God is not done with the Jews. He will not allow them to pass away. He's not neglected them. He is still interested in them. That's how Psalm 22 lays it out. Simply amazing prophecy. We have to keep moving. I think I failed in convincing you of that. I'm, I'm asking God to fill in the gaps. But we have to move on. Verse 26. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. That wasn't the Sermon on the Mount. That was Psalm 22, verse 26. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship thee. This thing that's happened, this thing so graphically described in those first 21 verses will affect the whole world. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Psalm 22 is an exact duplicate of the theology of the New Testament. Psalm 22 is the Great Commission, only a thousand years older. You know what I mean by the Great Commission, don't you? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's the Great Commission. And Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. This is amazing. And as, as a matter of fact, if you look at it this way, Psalm 22 is sort of out of place in its context. Psalm 22 obviously is in the book of Psalms, and the book of Psalms is in the Old Testament. But I got to say, 
Psalm 22 does not do a very effective job of reflecting Old Testament theology. You see, Old Testament theology focuses on creating, developing, and protecting God's chosen people. In Old Testament theology, the ends of the world were hostile, not to be trusted, certainly not to be welcomed into the congregation, and surely never regarded as brethren. It wasn't until the New Testament that we see God calling in the rest of mankind. John, are you inferring that God hated the outside world in the Old Testament? Of course, he didn't hate the outside world. The message wasn't ready yet. The time had not yet come. Psalm 22 is looking ahead to the time when God would be ready to bring in all of the nations. It's prophetic. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Now I want to point out something else that's very important. I told you at the beginning that I don't argue the things of God. I just... Lay out the facts. Modern Jewish scholarship contends that Psalm 22 is speaking of David. And by the way, a lot of Christians say that too. Now what I'm about to say is, it's not an argument. It's a question. It's a question to all who say that Psalm 22 is Davidic, meaning it's a reflection of the history of David. It's about David. When did David, that undeniably wonderful king of the Jews, do anything that would cause the whole world, the whole world, all the kindreds of the nations, that means the Gentiles, the world outside of the Jews, when did David do anything that turned the world unto the Lord? How could these statements apply to David? All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. How did David do that? And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. What is it that David did that will bring all the kindreds of the nations to worship God? What did he do that caused the world to remember God? This, listen to me, this does not speak of David. This could only speak of Christ. Christ changed the world. Listen, you don't even have to believe that he's the son of God. You don't even have to believe that to know that, to know that he changed the world. The life of Jesus changed the world. What did David do to change the world? Nothing. Listen, by the way, I get it. I I know this just seems too incredible to think about. Prophecy, to be honest, is actually one of the biggest obstacles to fully believing the Bible for the modern man or woman. So-called thinking men argue that seeing the future is impossible. So prophecy is impossible. I get that. 
prophecy is so hard to understand. How can it be? Well, if there's one thing that I've learned in my five going on six decades of life is that there are far more things that I don't understand than I do. And the list only grows. There are lots of things that I just can't figure out. But just because something is beyond my intellectual abilities doesn't mean it isn't true, possible, or believable. You see, the problem with mankind is we don't think that we're outmatched. We don't, at least we don't like to think we're outmatched. We prefer to believe that we've evolved. We, we prefer to believe that we've arrived. We're no longer throwing rocks at the moon. We're no longer at the mercy of our surroundings, so we think. We think we've conquered nature because we've convinced ourselves that we're so much smarter than it. And of course, we call it it because we prefer to think of the world around us as this nondescript, non-thinking, automatic, predictable, linear force that we can bend to our own will. That we, we know is just out there waiting for us to discover. And we love that word discover, don't we? We love to think that the world is just waiting for us to find it and harness it and conquer it. And all the while, we refuse to give it a name or a heart or a mind or a purpose because that might mean we aren't smarter than it. We like to feel that we're always one step in front of it. The whole world is panicking because of climate change. And I get that. And I certainly agree that the climate is changing. And we're all trying to sit down. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do about climate change. The arrogance of human beings. We just figure let's throw enough money at it and we'll fix it. Let's all sit down and talk about it for a while. Give it some really cool names. And it'll all get fixed. Nature is it our beck and call. And no one's praying. And no one's praying, God, protect us from climate change. Help us. We're either ignoring it or we're gathering the troops to fight it. And no one's praying to God about it. We've taken God out of our view of the world because if God were actually in the world, then that means we aren't in charge. And we might just have to answer to somebody bigger, stronger, and smarter. That's why we've decided we're too intelligent to think that God has a plan and that he's told us that plan among other ways through his word. We're too smart to fall for this idea that Psalm 22 foretold certain events. Okay, yeah, we can admit there are some amazing similarities, and we know when Psalm 22 was written, and we know when the Gospels were written, and therefore there's about a thousand years between them. We can discover that, yeah. 
but there has to be some other explanation for the similarities? The similarities must have to do with something other than prophecy because we're too smart to believe in prophecy. And we'll figure it out in due season. We're smart. All we smart people know at the moment is we're, we're, we're too good for this prophecy business. Listen, the only evidence we have is that Psalm 22 predicted what the gospel recorded 10 centuries later. It's exactly as Albert Barnes so beautifully put it. He said, quote, The expressions in the psalm are as applicable to him, Jesus, as they would be if they were history instead of prophecy. Well, I got news for you. It gets bigger than that. Not only did Psalm 22 prophesy the cross and the resurrection, it prophesied all the way to the end. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. That's the millennium. That's future to us yet. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is governor among the nations. Is that how things are now? Do you see the current state of things where all the ends of the world remember the Lord and all the kindreds of the nation are worshiping him? Is he governor among the nations? No. Has this ever been the state of things? No. So if it isn't current and it isn't history, it has to be future. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him and none can keep alive his own soul. My friends, not only is this great praise, not only is this joyful proclamation, can I say it again? It's a warning. You remember the parable of the wicked tenants, don't you? Let's read it real fast. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent the servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord therefore of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They, the Pharisees that were listening to this story, said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men. It's the ignoring of a warning. The closer I get to God's word 
honestly, the more my heart breaks for the wicked. Now, maybe I shouldn't worry about them. They don't seem to worry about themselves. They like to laugh at the thought of serving God. They laugh at the thought of serving anyone that they don't first approve of. They go through life chasing whatever pleases them. And listen, I'm not talking about the normal naughty things that every other preacher likes to talk about. I'm talking about anything that's outside of the kingdom, greed, pride, envy, hatred, all those things that are expressly against what God has commanded. We've convinced ourselves that it's right and good to pursue our own pleasure. We've convinced ourselves that we don't have to answer to anyone. Psalm 22 is your warning. There will come a day, like it or not, that all the world will turn to the Lord. Now, some will turn and see him with eyes full of tears of joy and love. And then there will be others who will turn and see him with their eyes full of tears of pain and fear. Now, I don't believe in scaring people into salvation, but I do believe in communicating truth. Verse 29 again, All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. There's no avoiding this. Psalm 22 has been right about everything so far. What makes us think this won't happen too? It will happen. God's word is truth from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation 22-21. Everything that God's word has said is either already happened or is about to happen. Either that thought is going to warm your heart with love or scorch your heart with fear. Get this settled in your mind. God's word is true. God's word is true. What are you going to do about it? Verse 30, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. He hath done this. By the way, not a good translation. It should read, and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that it is finished. Sound familiar? We read a few moments ago, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Another coincidence? You have to decide. God's not going to force you to believe his word. But I believe it's prophecy. It is finished was prophetic of Jesus saying it on the cross. Listen, there's too much here to ignore. I mean, this is not just a pulling a few things out of context. It's impossible to set this aside. This can only be proof of the truth of God's word. I'm going to repeat my warning from last week. Don't turn your back on this. See this as God's truth. See this as God telling you what's available to you, and he's doing it in such a, a dramatic way. 
honor him. Honor what he's done. See that it's finished and turn to him today. Give him your heart. Give him your life and join him in declaring that it is indeed finished. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.